Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Where did we meet? I can't even remember. We met at Insight. Insight? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Also, they had really good cookies, too. They had, like, these <laughs> soft-baked cookies. Yeah, I remember. God, I miss normal life. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters, And I am Lingham Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, December 3rd, crime-free housing. What am I talking about, Liam? You're talking about a set of policies across the country, especially here in California, where myself and a couple of colleagues at the LA Times took a deep look at, and we found that these policies, which sort of encourage landlords to evict or exclude tenants who have had prior convictions or new arrests, really disproportionately affect Black and Latino residents across the state. And we have the perfect guest to talk about that with. This one actually yeah, is ta- the perfect guest. Yes. I'm talking with Terrence Stewart. He's a resident of Riverside County before and during his time as a student at UC Riverside. Struggled for years finding housing as a result of these policies after having a uh, cocaine conviction. It is very difficult to live in California with a felony conviction on your record. And this is just one of the many examples of how that plays out. And Terrence now works at um, Criminal Justice Reform Organization, Californians for Safety and Justice, advocating to end policies like these. We will also be talking about Project Home Key, an update on Governor Gavin Newsom's ambitious attempt to buy a bunch of homeless housing, usually motels. And turn it into, yes. Turn it into homeless housing within a six-month period. It's what I've been calling Black Friday or Cyber Monday for homeless housing. Okay. I, I think I'm the only person that calls it that. I think that is probably true. But it's very accessible. But first, we have a couple of announcements. Let's get to the more fun one first. Let's talk about, I guess, the most popular award in all of California housing podcastery. Apologies to whatever those Yimby Awards are. I don't know if they have a podcasting category. If they do, we've been shut out. For years on end. Yes, yes. which we yeah. take incredibly personally. It is the Avocado of the Year, our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past year. It's, I don't know, the most competitive award in all of California housing podcastery. I mean, I'm already getting for your consideration in my inbox. I've even seen, although I know we're shutting down more than we have, but I walk around Los Angeles. I see some billboards with like big avocados on it, like Liam mm-hmm. and Matt, please consider this housing project for your avocado of the year. It's really that that season, you know? Also, I you have me thinking we should do like a lifetime achievement award Yes, for avocados at some point with... Probably some avocado build- of the decade, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or source right. of the most avocados, you know, Marin right. County, Beverly right. Hills. <laughs> anyway, we will be announcing that on our next podcast. And Liam, you have tweeted some of the nominees, correct? Yes, I've tweeted out four nominees and we had two honorable mentions. You can see that on my Twitter feed and we'll go into more detail in the next episode. But if you want to take a look at some of the very, very ripe, if you will, candidates, check out my Twitter feed. And Matt, you guys will be doing something too? Yeah, we will also be putting this out on social. And we should say you can vote. You can vote for the Avocado of the Year. So you can either vote in the Twitter poll that Liam put out or on the Twitter poll. And I think we'll probably do a Facebook poll or whatever the Facebook equivalent is. Vote for one of the four nominees. We highly encourage you to do so. So that's our Avocado of the Year announcement, and we will also live up to our promise that we made earlier in the year to- That all of you remember, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> that Liam and I just recently remembered, which was to have a subscriber and donor, so a subscriber to the LA Times and a donor to Cal Matters, read the Avocado of the Year on air, which I'm excited for. Yes, we'll have a real live person, a guest on our next episode. Yeah. This is our only sweepstakes I think we've launched, <laughs> and it remains to be successfully executed, so we'll see how this mm-hmm. works out. And so, Matt, you also have some uh, another big announcement? Yes, I do. This is a announcement with some mixed feelings. So I will be leaving Cal Matters in January to take a job at Marketplace, the public radio program that you might listen to on your way home, or at least when you used to commute back from the office. I will only be doing a few more podcasts with you, Liam. I'll be saying this many times, but it's been an an absolute pleasure to be working with you on this over the past few years. I'm going to miss you very much doing this together, and I really wish you the the best in the new new job. Well, thank you. This has succeeded beyond either of our expectations. It's been incredibly, incredibly gratifying to actually have a partner that cares about something as much as I care about something, which sounds like I'm throwing shade at my romantic partner, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, not, that's not the intent at all. You're fantastic to work with, and I'm sad. I'm sad that this won't be part of my life anymore, something that we created. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But the plan yeah. is for the podcast to continue, so... Cal Matters wants the podcast to go on. We're hoping to have some type of handoff to whoever might replace me. So fear not, dear California Housing Pod listener, we will find a way to keep this going in the future. Yeah, that's our hope. Things will never be the same, but uh, they will be what they are, and hopefully we can keep this going. Yes. Probably a good segment of our listeners are rejoicing at this announcement, um, (laughs) which I don't blame them for, but... Mm. I will be here, I should say, at least for two more episodes in addition to this one. I'm kind of excited for the lineup that we are at least yeah, trying to assemble some, for those. Uh, some special guests for our end of our reign here. And one of those podcasts, I think, will just be a sit down with me and you and perhaps with some type of marriage counselor so we can air all of our grievances about each other and California housing. Yeah, and we'll see if we make it out of that one. <laughs> oh man the nostalgia is washing over me now. i know it's it's too much already it is well it would not be an episode of gimme shelter even if it is the one where i'm announcing my imminent departure without the most popular segment in all of california housing podcastery it is the avocado of the fortnight our look at the most absurd california housing story of the past two weeks and this avocado takes us to a place i don't think we've gone before liam Zoom? And, is it Zoom? No, I was going to say Hell's Vestibule. <laughs> okay, okay. All yes. right, all right. Matt, uh, why don't you take it away and provide some context here? Sure. So well, let me ask you this first, Liam. Do you believe in an afterlife? Oh, man. I thought we were going to save these questions till our, when we our last episode together. They are um, essential to this avocado, <laughs> Liam. I'm going to go with yes. Oh, wow. That's surprising in some well, ways. Well, I mean... There's a long conversation with what that what I mean by that, but I'll just say yes. Okay. For, for now. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot on this podcast about sticks and carrots. Mm-hmm. How California as a state can get local governments to build more housing and especially housing for people experiencing homelessness, right? Yep. Your carrots are your incentives. You got your grants, you got your uh, transportation funding, you got I don't know. I mean, a sure hand is money. 
money. Shortly. Yeah. Maybe some seized candies or something. <laughs> and then the sticks are punishment. So that's usually taking away money. But Governor Gavin Newsom offered a new carrot that I had not heard before in trying to get local governments to build more homeless housing. He did this a couple weeks back at a, a Zoom meeting for the annual California State Association of Counties conference when he was asked about Project Home Key. So Liam, remind our dear listeners what Project Home Key is very briefly. Yeah, so it's a program that the state started with some of the federal aid it received through the coronavirus relief packages that allows cities and counties to purchase sort of underutilized hotels and motels and then convert them into homeless housing. And two days before this Zoom meeting with the California State Association of Counties, Marin County had voted essentially to abandon a project that the state had awarded money to them to pursue, which was this motel called the In Marin in Novato to convert 70 units of this motel into homeless housing. And Newsom was not super happy about this development or sorry, the new carrot that he was dangling in front- Or avocado that he was dangling. Mm, in front of his audience of county supervisors and other local elected officials was less time burning in the afterlife. And I will quote, this is Governor Newsom. You can take years off purgatory, anything you've damn dumb wrong in your damn lives. <laughs> he goes on to use the word damn 11 times. I've been covering Gavin, you know, since he was elected. That, to me, is a record for the number of times he said damn in some type of pseudo-public address, at least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's about it. That's the avocado. We'll see if that works. And you understand why the guy's angry. I mean, all the time when local governments and whatever talk about, like, you know, the big problem is the state doesn't give us enough money to build low-income housing, and that's why there isn't any. And here's essentially the state giving the, the vast lion's share of what's needed to get kind of out of the box, like ready to go homeless housing. And you have not just in Marin, but other places, cities saying, nah, it's all right. <laughs> and so, you know, we don't want it. We don't need it, right? And so you could see why the governor's, the governor's angry about that. Yeah. Speaking of home key, Matt, you did a really good story that published earlier this week that looked at what's been going on with this project because another thing that's really interesting that we didn't mention is that there's a very tight timeline, right? So like these projects has to be turned around or purchased by the end of the year. And so an interesting way to, to see the progress in this kind of signature initiative, how did you assess how this has been going so far? So not just me, but the homelessness researchers I talked to and service providers and those who were actually involved in purchasing these properties, the reviews so, so far are pretty positive. And that's Mostly because, as you referenced, HomeKey is delivering the two things that homelessness advocates have lobbied for for decades, which is here's a big pile of money, $800 million, right? Nearly a billion dollars at this point. It's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take away some of these regulatory hurdles that either make it very time consuming to site new homeless housing or derail homeless housing altogether. So, so far, the reviews have been fairly positive. I say it's relatively early, though, even though they have a month to complete all these purchases. So they've targeted 97 properties for purchase across the state. L.A. County is getting the most. Bay Area and then the rest of Southern California, including San Diego, are also getting a bunch of properties. Only 25 properties as of last week have actually closed escrow. So 70 plus properties have yet to actually dot their I's and cross their T's. So the state is anticipating that the vast majority of those projects actually go through. 
I'm a little hesitant to you know say that's going to happen automatically because of what we saw in places in like Marin, Marin County. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and in mm-hmm. Sacramento there was a. Hampton Suites in the River District that was supposed to provide a bunch of new units, and it faced significant local opposition, two lawsuits, yeah. and Sacramento ended up backing away from it. City officials said the lawsuits were less of a the reason why they backed away, more of a difference between purchase price and appraisal price, but still, it's not good if you're being sued twice and trying right. to set up homeless housing in a very, very, very fast time frame. So if they were able to actually get all these done, you could argue this is among the signature successes in the new administration on this issue, right? There is no question that the amount of housing that they have been able or they will have been able to acquire, assuming the rest of these projects do go through, so we're looking at 6,100 units about. They have acquired it in a amount of time that's unprecedented. I mean, it's six months. Like this stuff yeah. takes years. And right. it looks like they're doing it at a acquisition cost, which preliminarily is about 150 grand per unit, which I know does not sound cheap, but when you compare that to building homeless housing from scratch, right. it's a relative bargain. Yes, it is not an apples to apples comparison because there's going to be additional costs to rehab and convert many of these motels to permanent supportive housing. But even after you add in those additional costs, it is likely going to be less than building housing from scratch and certainly timelier. All of these properties have to be occupied at least for temporary housing within 90 days. Some listeners of this podcast will know that we spent some time in the spring talking about the high cost to build low-income housing in the state as one of the major barriers to there being enough of it, right? And so the, the figure that we found is roughly 500000 or more per apartment. Yeah. You know, as you said, one fifty to acquire it, it's a little more when you kind of all in once you rehab it and everything, but you're still seeing a pretty significant cost savings for doing it this way. That's exactly right. So, but then the big question, of course, is you said 6,100 potential apartments as a part of this for homeless housing as a part of this, you know, the last I checked were like 150,000 homeless residents, right? Um, yep. And so even despite this kind of very rapid adoption of this program on this these new housing units, you know, are we really going to see any, any sort of meaningful decline in visible homelessness with this? So probably not. Perhaps in, a, in some smaller communities where there's a significant expansion of homeless housing as a result of home key, but in the major epicenters of homelessness, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, certain parts of San Diego, probably not. And that's for two reasons. One, as you referenced earlier, it's the magnitude of the problem. So that 150,000 figure is likely an underestimate. The scope of that is mind boggling. Like that's a huge, huge number. 6,100 units is gonna help, but it's not going to make a huge dent in it. The second issue is homelessness is a stream, not a stock. So Mm -hmm. people are falling into homelessness all the time. And what advocates are worried about is the real effects of the pandemic on homelessness haven't really been felt yet. It's hard to say that, you know, scientifically, because we don't have good data, But talking with shelter providers and service providers and researchers, it doesn't seem like there's a flood of new people becoming homeless right now. What they worry about is when these eviction moratoriums expire, what happens then? And in California, it is set to expire at the end of January. 
and because there hasn't been a second round of stimulus spending with either unemployment assistance or direct rental assistance, there's a lot of people who are behind on their rent right now. For those two reasons, that presents a real political problem for Gavin Newsom, who has tackled this issue in a much more head-on way than any of his predecessors that I can remember, certainly more than Brown did, right? Right. He is polling very poorly on it. And even if this program is a success, the average California voter may not know it is when they walk down a freeway underpass and see things really haven't changed or maybe have even gotten worse. So just two things quickly, one to highlight that 150,000 homeless population number that I gave was for the pandemic, right? So yes. there's no nothing pandemic factored into that number. That's number January 2019. So that's number one. Number two, to your, to your latter point about the voter wants to know that my housing is more affordable, right? And the voter wants to know that we can see a meaningful change in homelessness. And again, despite the fact that you're putting all of these units on the market or to work, if your rent's going down or you're not unable to afford a house or you continue to see encampments or you're living in an encampment, right? You don't feel like this problem has gotten better. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears to crime-free housing. Liam, what is crime-free housing? This kind of entered my radar back last December. There was a lawsuit filed by the Trump administration, the Department of Justice, against the city of Hesperia in the high desert, a city in the high desert here in Southern California, that against a policy that called for the eviction of those who had even in some cases just made calls to 911 in the city. And reading through that lawsuit, a couple of things, you know, so it was a civil rights lawsuit filed by the DOJ for fair housing claiming that Hesperia intentionally targeted black and Latino residents to be evicted. And then the impact of this law by making it such that you would evict tenants who have had interactions with law enforcement disproportionately affected black and Latino residents as well. And so my first, to be honest, um, feeling was, wow, must be something if the Trump administration is going to file a fair housing lawsuit against the community, if this alleging overarching racism in in a city policy, Mm -hmm. not something we've seen frequently coming out of this administration, right? Mm -hmm. Number one. And number two is like, you know, there is no way that Hesperia is the only city that has one of some of these kinds of rules. And so kind of back burner the idea to say, hey, this will be worth taking a look at again in the future. And then of course, in the springtime, end of May, once we saw with the concerns around after the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police in Minneapolis and the protests we saw for racial justice and criminal justice issues around the country, it made me think of this, taking a closer look at trying to understand where these policies were in California, how widespread they were and who they would affect. And so what we did, myself and a couple of colleagues, was to learn very quickly that these policies are very widespread in California. And what they do vary, but they're aimed at empowering landlords to evict or exclude tenants who have had some brushes with law enforcement. Some of these are in the forms of laws like municipal ordinances and others programs are in the forms of police training for landlords on like background checks and having anti-crime lease provisions. Could you quickly give an example of one of the municipal ordinances, one of the laws? Yes, there's one that comes to mind in the city of Fairfield, a Bay Area suburb. And that law essentially said if a landlord knowingly allowed drug use or prostitution in a one of their units, they could be fined by the city. And a way, you know, generally speaking, these landlords could cure those fines or make those fines go away is if they get rid of the tenant. That's a typical kind of policy that you would see up and down the state. 
Gotcha. So how many California cities have these types of crime-free policies? So we found at least 147 cities and counties in the state. So that's more than a quarter of all the local governments in the state either have a crime-free law or advertise crime-free training. And was there anything these cities had in common? Well, we took a closer look because, again, we wanted to get a better sense of what the racial impacts may be. And so we examined the cities that have had the largest increases in black population and Latino population since 1990. What we found of those 20 cities with largest increases in black population, 85% have approved these crime-free housing policies. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're talking about communities like Lancaster, Moreno Valley, Victorville, all Southern California, kind of fast-growing suburbs are places that have had these large black population growth that have approved crime-free housing policies. And then for areas with similar communities saw the largest increases in Latino population, 75% have approved policies, including Fresno, Bakersfield, and Ontario. So there were these demographic changes that's a common thread among these cities. But did these cities actually see a rise in crime that could help justify these? Right. So we took a closer look. We didn't look at every single city, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Two points that worth noting, these policies first came about in the late 80s, early 90s, when you were seeing larger increases in crime going on. But since then, and since a lot of these policies have come into effect in California, there's been a general broad decrease in crime that we've seen not just in California, but nationally. And similarly, we took kind of a hard look at a few places that have had kind of the the most heated rhetoric and also most severe policies and Hesperia being one of them, also Antioch in the Bay Area, Hemet, another kind of exurban Southern California. The argument there was, you know, well, these are increasing crime, so we have to have these policies. And that was not the case. We found that crime rates in those areas right before their housing law came into place, they were either stable or going down. So I think your story also made the conclusion that at least in a few of these cities, those that were subject to these crime-free housing laws who were evicted because of them were also disproportionately black or brown. How did local officials explain that disparity? There is some data, and I'm not going to go too much into it here, but you can definitely check out my story to kind of examine the data that we were able to get. I think representative to your point or to your question was a conversation that I had with the city attorney in Los Angeles, Mike Fewer. There is one of these crime-free housing programs that LA has. Some outside researchers found that about three quarters of the lawsuits they filed under this program were in black and Latino neighborhoods in South LA, mm-hmm. right? And I asked, well, listen, you know, why is that the case? And basically the argument was, well, that's where the issues are, the issues with drugs and with gangs. And so the city would be a derelict in our duty if we did not address these problems in, in these areas because folks who are living there deserve to live crime-free, the same way that folks in more affluent and more white communities. How do those neighbors feel about the program? Do they think it works? I mean, it's difficult to answer that question. I mean, we did in the story talk to an executive director of a, a charter middle school who was very pleased. And the parents of that middle school were very pleased when the city attorney in LA came in and kind of helped force the sale of a, a couple apartment complexes where there were a lot of problems that were threatening that school during the day. But, you know, we wanted to sort of know systematically if there was any analysis that was done in some of these hot button communities about Mm -hmm. whether these programs were actually effective at reducing crime, kind of beyond anecdote, right? And 
there wasn't. I mean, they have not done those analyses, mm-hmm. nor were there any analyses that were done about concerns on racial bias with these programs. And that's in contrast to some of the kind of very severe racist overtone, racist undertone, and just plain kind of racist rhetoric that went into place before some of these policies ended up being passed. So you mentioned the Trump administration lawsuit earlier. What efforts are underway to reform these laws? Yeah, so it's kind of like a pendulum swing, I think. Mm -hmm. You could say at this point that there is some efforts to remove some of these policies because some of the concerns that have been raised, particularly among these policies disproportionately affecting Black and Latino residents. And so back in 2016, HUD recommended cities repeal their crime-free programs to avoid running afoul of fair housing laws. Two years ago, state legislators banned police response to domestic violence, emergency medical calls as a basis for evictions under these laws. Department of Fair Employment and Housing here in California in January issued a new regulation to try to target these. HUD continues to be active. In fact, recently in the city of Hemet, which I raised earlier, they put some pressure on Hemet to repeal their law, which the city council member there did. But we're also seeing these policies continue to pass. And in fact, one of my, my favorite example of this is a city in the Inland Empire called Canyon Lake, which uh, passed its law in a crime-free housing law in January. Canyon Lake, 11,000 people, and I learned one of the largest gated communities in the country. So the city Mm -hmm. is gated, and they end up passing this law uh, Mm -hmm. as well in January. So I want to push on a couple things in your story. Do you think landlords should have the right to see whether somebody had a criminal conviction in their their record before renting to them? And if so, why not? Yeah. So I think a lot of different ways you can think about that. I'm going to dodge your question. I'm going to dodge your (laughs) question. But I'm going to answer in a way that I think speaks to one overarching thing and why I think our reporting on this was good to highlight policies, which, you know, I didn't know they existed. And I I know many others who didn't know these sorts of things existed either, right, before Mm -hmm. all this. And I think it's one thing for a landlord to say, you know, I'm going to do a background check. And if someone has a criminal history or a violent criminal history or something, right, that landlord could say no on their own. And another thing, I think, to have a city law or a police department leaning on landlords to do that. You know, and in fact, we didn't really get into this in the story, but there are multiple cases. And in fact, some of the most successful lawsuits against crime-free housing laws, not just in California, but around the country, were not filed by tenants who were affected by this, but actually landlords who were arguing that these laws affected their property rights Mm -hmm. and affected who they would be allowed to rent their property to. Some laws say, hey, someone has caught smoke marijuana, you have to evict them. And the landlord's saying, wait a second, I I like this family in my apartment. I don't want to evict someone if they use marijuana and you're making me. And so these practices around the country, sometimes landlords are among those who oppose them the most. And in fact, in Hesperia's case, that was true. The Apartment Association was against Hesperia's law before it passed. Also, you could argue it it simply limits the applicant pool, right? And in some rental markets, that might really matter for landlords actually just to get people in their units. I bring that point up because I think it's a question here of which is the bigger problem in terms of discriminatory impact. Is it the the codified crime-free programs or is it the fact that a landlord can see that you've had a criminal conviction even without the help of these crime-free programs and say, nah, I'm not doing this. 
And it was interesting kind of fusing these together. I reference a lot in this story, this training manual that many departments in California use that was started by a former police officer in Arizona from the early 90s. And this manual, you know, makes a point of saying uh, someone's criminal history is not a protected class under the fair housing law. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do this. And so, again, that's to my point about kind of this encouragement from police departments to actually do it. I think it's very different. The police department is saying basically implicitly or explicitly saying don't rent to someone from with a criminal background versus a landlord making their own decision not to do that. And another thing that's significant about this manual, and again, sort of kind of lightly adapted and really widespread throughout the state, is that the manual is really disturbing language. I mean, right at the top, it refers to criminals as, quote, weeds, also calls criminals the, quote, two-legged urban predator. So kind of language that really, really gross, frankly. This is the program that many landlords are being taught by police departments all around California. One of the crime-free housing policies you mentioned in the story is a requirement, and I wanna make sure I understand this right, it's a requirement that landlords evict a tenant if they are arrested, is that right? Well, yes. And again, I'm pausing because it kind of depends on the city. Some of them are really strong, and that's among the strongest, is that a requirement to evict if you're arrested. Some of it's a little bit lighter. Like, if if you're arrested, we will fine you, landlord, an exorbitant amount of money. But by the way, if you end up evicting the tenant, then that fine goes away. You know what I mean? So, like, there are gradations of this up and down the scale. And in some of the cases, Hesperia being one of them, it didn't even necessarily need to have an arrest. A HUD investigation in Hesperia found a woman and her kids evicted after she made a domestic violence call to police saying that her husband was beating her. And the result was the eviction, you know, of the wife and their kids from that apartment. Again, that's the kind of like most extreme are cases like that. And, you know, it kind of goes less and less extreme kind of down the line. So has anybody tried to challenge that on due process grounds? Because we're talking about an arrest, not a conviction. You know, it's interesting, too, in the same manual that I've been referencing, there's a long section in there about how the evidentiary standards under, you know, the civil court and the eviction court are very different than the under, than the evidentiary standards in criminal, in court. criminal court. Right. So beyond a reasonable doubt, everyone knows you have to be convicted of a crime. More probable than not is your evidentiary standard under the civil courts. And so there's a long discussion about, yeah, you know, it's actually really good that we can, or what we can use here with these crime-free programs, because then we don't even need to have a conviction. We can just have have someone arrested and that can be good enough and again this is what the manual says yeah. can be good enough to get folks out of the apartment what do you say to those law enforcement agencies and this is what i'm presuming they're based off some of my prior conversations with sheriff's departments about evictions but are some hot spots of drug activity and other types of crime that get concentrated in one apartment building or one mm-hmm. motel and right, that right. It is sometimes difficult to contain those activities, right, without disrupting that hotspot in some way. What's your response to that? Well, it's funny, you know, I had a long talk with the police officer who runs this program for the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Mm -hmm. Department. Some of the more aggressive policies are in that community. And he's like, well, you know, how would you like it if there's drug dealing next to you? And, you know, I said, well, there's, you know, the neighbors above me are noisy, right? I mean, I don't like that either, right? He says, exactly, right? And so, like, we have the, you know, people don't like living next to things in their apartment complexes that can be noisy or problematic or troublesome. And I guess my question is, is there a way to perhaps exhaust alternatives 
where you do not have these potential kind of negative downstream effects that we, you know, we're going to hear in the interview with Terrence Stewart, where he can't find a house for a decade, right? Or mm-hmm. can't find an apartment to live in with his wife and his kids because he had a conviction before. You know, there are ways, you know, one of the, another part of this programs is actually police department will go out and say, oh, you know, you should cut your hedges or you should fix your lighting or do all these sorts of things that are like physical on the property, make it less likely for there to be crime involved there. And no one, you know, none of the civil rights groups or whomever that I spoke with have any problem with those kinds of activities. They would just say that maybe code enforcement can do that and not police officers. And so it just seems to me, again, I'm, I'm dodging your question slightly. There's seems to be a lot of options you could exhaust that again, contrast to like a blunt instrument, you could find other ways to address some of these issues that don't result in the disproportionate impacts that we found in our story and don't result in these long-term effects that these policies have had on folks like Terrence Stewart. Well, that's a great segue. Let's talk with Terrence right now. We are here with Terrence Stewart, who has had experiences dealing with these crime-free housing laws for some time and has come out the other side of it. So, Terrence, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate y'all. So, Terrence, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like? You know, I grew up all over the place. I kind of moved around. But I'll say that I'm from Pomona. You know, I mean, that's the city I represent. But then through college is how I end up moving to Riverside and try to live in the city of Riverside and surrounding areas. Tell us a little about some of the troubles that you got into with law enforcement when you were when you were young. You know, I lived in an area where I guess they called it a hot zone. They tried to have a lot of crime prevention. And because of that, like the kids within that area under the guise of crime prevention, we were stopped all the time because we looked at the image of crime. And doing so, while I, in my younger ages and stuff, I had got caught with some drugs. And because of that, it created me to have a record, a criminal record. I don't, I don't like to call it a criminal record because I don't feel like I'm a criminal. So like a record, you know, against me. At first, when I was young, I didn't realize how much that record was going to affect me in the future. How young were you when you, let's say, first got arrested? When you say arrested, do you mean like actually took into jail or just placed in handcuffs? Put into jail. I want to say I probably was about 15. Wow. My cousin had bought a car and the car was stolen. He had the paperwork and everything. And, you know, he really had bought a stolen car. So the police had pulled us over and hemped us up and took us all out the car and everything. Yeah, my first time I ever was arrested was for joyriding. Case got dropped, that one, because it was obvious my cousin had keys and a bill of sale and all that stuff. So, like, that was the first thing. But what I had been incarcerated for, well... It was like a stipulation with drugs, and I had some drugs on me when they caught me, and they put me in jail for possession of a cocaine base. So it was cocaine, and the charge was you ultimately pleaded to, was it like a cocaine with intent to distribute or something like that was the ultimate, ultimately what you were yeah, in for? Yeah. I was young and didn't understand the system like that either. I hopped on a deal that I probably shouldn't have, Because of that, I kind of copped out for a lesser deal. And I was thinking at that time in my life, like, you know, me being on the streets and being able to uh, take care of myself was better. But I realized that I hopped on a deal that was a lifelong punishment. And by hopping on a deal, you mean pleading to the charge? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what I mean. 
Okay, so you're like what? 20-ish. This is in L.A. or just... It was in L.A. County, the city of Pomona. That's where it happened initially. How long was your sentence? And then what was your mentality kind of coming out of being incarcerated? Like, ultimately, because of this initial drug possession, I ended up violating probation. I did a little time at first, and then I violated, and I ended up doing some prison time. I did two years in prison. I don't know if I told you all this, but even when I went to prison, I was enrolled in college. Like, when I was in prison, my mindset was, once I got sentenced to four years with halftime, which is two years, I figured to myself that, like, within that time, two years of my life being on pause, I could have had a college degree. That was one of the overarching things that I, I wanted to do. You know, when I touched down back to society, I wanted to go back to college. Be more than just a criminal record. Even coming out, that was the mentality I had. So right after you get out, you enroll immediately? Or was, it was Compton College, correct? Yes. I went to school two weeks out of prison. I would have been there sooner, but classes didn't start to two weeks later. Yeah. What type of career did you want to pursue or field did you want to study? I first came into college as a um, business major. I did well in it, too. You know, I wanted to get out and become an entrepreneur mm -hmm. because I heard of the collateral consequences of criminal conviction as far as like having a record, how it blocks everything and getting jobs and stuff. So, I mean, the first mindset that I had because of my record was to try to reach some level of entrepreneurship. Any of that stuff wouldn't affect you because you'd be your, your own boss. Absolutely. I didn't know, you know, a lot of things that, about that too because that was the mind frame I had, but I didn't know how massive these collateral consequences of criminal conviction was. I didn't even know about legal licenses and all this other stuff. So, like, some of the plans that I was having, I was greeted with rejection as far as, like, trying to get jobs at first during the time. And, like, everything in the in-between to me trying to make it to a level of entrepreneurship. And I was running to roadblocks. And, like, what happened was, and this is how I got kind of caught off into advocacy, was I was at the college when this stuff was happening. And I was vocal about it. It put me in a position where I got to speak out at an event. And because of that, I met provost of the Compton Community College School District. I met the dean of student services and the mayor of Compton. I told him about some of the struggles I had as a person with a past conviction who's trying to get itself together. Because of that, they start providing other platforms for me to speak about some of the struggles of having a past conviction. So like... This is kind of like where it started me being an advocate on issues of past conviction. So you go through the two years and you get your community college degree and then you get accepted into UC Riverside, right? That was on the path that you, you decided to go there. I mean, that's, what were you feeling at the time when you got into Riverside? I couldn't even believe it. To be completely honest with you, I felt like just through some of the hardships I had, good things couldn't happen to me. Like positivity was not connected to me. That's what I felt at a certain time. So till I stepped foot on college campus, I kept on thinking that they were going to call me back and tell me because of my criminal record, there was going to be some complication of me and why I couldn't go there. So I completely, absolutely shocked. I was absolutely shocked that I could go to a four-year university. So part of attending UC Riverside entailed a search for housing or an apartment around campus. Tell us about what that process was like. Oh my gosh. When I graduated from Compton College, one thing happened was seven days before I graduated, my daughter was born. And how old were you at the time? This is around 
2010, so I probably was on the verge of turning 30. So I had a family at this time, and we was living in Watts. I had gotten accepted to UCR, and I chose UCR because I wanted to try to, like, some up mobilitation. Like, I wanted to move from where I was at and try to put myself in a different situation. So I went to UCR. Well, first I had to catch the bus to the train station and then catch the train to, to the University of California, Riverside, and then catch another bus from there. So, like, that was taking me about, like, two hours, four hours all in total there and back, you know? Yeah. And I was doing this daily. After a while, like, the, our housing situation went sour where we were at. So I ended up just renting rooms in Riverside. The way I was getting the rooms were at this time was I had a student loan. So I was renting rooms in Riverside off a of university just so I could um, go to college, you know, and put a roof over my wife and daughter's head. And at that point, you're also looking to try to find sort of a more permanent apartment in the neighborhood, right, near the university. And, and is that when you first learned about these crime-free housing policies? Well, I didn't even find out right away. It took the process of applying for apartments. And this was what was making it hard was because, um, one, everybody over 18 years old, they got to do a credit report. And that's where they do your background check and all this other stuff. That cost is anywhere from $25 to $50 per person over 18. Just to apply for an apartment costs anywhere from $50 to $100. And then on top of that, you got to put down $100. It's a holding fee where they'll hold your apartment. You know, you're pretty much going to spend $150 to $200 per application. I kept on getting turned down. They'll send you the information on why they rejected you and, and Time and time again, it was because of my criminal record. This was tying up a lot of money for the holds and the money I was spending on all these applications. So I start asking people before I go in, like, you know, this is my situation and I don't have extra money to spend. And like, you know, pretty much if y'all ain't going to set me, let me know. Different places start telling me about like, you know, we would love to have you in because I did well at college. college. I had awards and plaques and everything. I walked around with a backpack full of awards. And they, they, they would love to have me in, but because of these policies, it was sorry, sir, because of these policies, we can't be there. Uh, so I started asking, like, what policies is this? And that's when I found out about Crime-Free Multi-Housing Project. Do you think when the landlords said that to you that, you know, we'd love to have you, but it's just these crime-free housing policies that we have to obey, do you think that that was an excuse for them, that they did legitimately want to have you there? Maybe in some of these places it was that, but I think overarching, it was the policy. Because like any human see a person that's going to college with a backpack full of awards, a wife, a daughter who is working hard to put himself in upward mobility, people want to help. And that's what I was. Like I could actually tell that this policy not just made me feel low, it made the people who had to tell me no feel low. It was heartbreaking. It's sad because I, I think I told you before, but my wife have never, she ain't never even been in handcuffs before. My kids either. And like I said, at the time I had like little funding and income and it wasn't my income that was the problem. It was something that I did way before I knew any of them. And I never like to say this because I'm not trying to throw nobody under the bus. But it wasn't no violent crime or nothing. It was something that was done as a teenager partying, you know, and they, they labeled me a criminal record. 
And they continuously remind me that I was a criminal. The reason why you wasn't accepted was because of your criminal background. And I didn't feel like no criminal. You know, I, I did. I feel like I was, I was a college student. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm reaching goals. I'm tr taking myself from living in a place of hardships and trying to move into a nice community. And still, that was a lot of the, the hardships that I felt. I cried. I'm like, I tried to be strong because I never wanted my family to see me panic because I think if I would have panicked, it would have caused them to panic. I was trying to maintain strength, but really I was like so broken, man, as far as when it came down to this housing. I'm just thankful for like my wife and my family were like being there. I posted on Facebook before and people don't understand, but like the struggle is, is not as much of a struggle when you got somebody there that loves you. You know, I'm really appreciative of them for that because through that struggle, man, you know, my wife and my daughter were the people who I hugged on and was my support system at that time. So basically what you're saying is you were shut out of everything around. In Riverside, I've been in this area since 2010, so that's pretty much 10 years. I would have never lived in Riverside if it wasn't for family housing at UCR. And that's still to this day. I still haven't lived in Riverside, and that's where I would like to live. But... I have to find outskirts because most of the apartments are through the crime-free multi-housing projects. And they're going to tell you, I'm sorry, sir. And like, I have applied to a large percentage of apartments in Riverside. And that's the part about it is that when I drive around with my wife and we talk about all the apartments that we applied to, and it's funny because we drive by somewhere and we'd be like, do you remember applying for there? To your point before, you said other people that don't want you there. That's real too. That's very much so real because implicit bias and all types of stuff came out in all kinds of meetings from things like landlords saying, we don't accept Section 8. You know, like, I don't have Section 8. <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't qualify for that right now either. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you deal with entities that ain't crime-free multi-housing projects and they kind of like don't have people looking over them, they kind of run their own program. So I deal with a lot of stuff when it came down to landlords and housing, even with Fair Chance Housing. I went to Fair Chance Housing and they told me I was not a part of a protected group and they couldn't help me, you know? In terms of the criminal history issue. Yes, like it's all kinds of protected groups. It's like disability is a protected group, race is a protected group, gender is a protected group, like all these different things that are protected groups, but people with past convictions are not a protected group, so they, they can discriminate on you. They can tell you, no, you can't live here because of your record. They can't do that about a lot of other things, but they can tell you about that. So like, you kind of like left on your own, try your best to talk to people, but unless somebody has a house, or somewhere where they got is really no help. You know, you got to keep on keeping on and keeping on keeping on. After the story published, I think one thing some readers have been talking to me about, but I think one thing that really struck people is after this initial, when you first get into Riverside and search for housing there and end up far away in order to, to come in every day, you know, you were in Riverside at Riverside for five years, ended up with a master's degree, graduate, right? Living in student housing at some point, mm -hmm. right? get a master's degree, graduate, and then you're trying to find housing again around Riverside and can't. So now we're talking close to 10 years after you were incarcerated and the same issue. I mean, did you expect even coming out with a master's degree to be facing the same challenges as you were facing initially? I think it's noteworthy to highlight the fact that I was just going to get my bachelor's degree at first. 
But the reason why I stayed to get my master's degree was because it gave me an opportunity at housing. So like, there's a positive there, the part that at housing, but it put me in further debt too. My last year in my bachelor's, I took it slow on purpose as well so that I could stay in housing. It was a reoccurring nightmare all the time. I was scared to graduate because I was scared that I wasn't gonna have nowhere to stay. I didn't wanna leave school. Where are you now, Terrence? I'm on the outskirts of Riverside. I don't know if it's a city or town of Colton. In an apartment you're renting with your wife and yeah. child? Yep. And th these apartments are not a part of the crime-free multi-housing project. So, And I'm thankful for my organization because California Forsaken Justice gave me an opportunity to like advocate for these issues because this is real life for not just me, it's for so many people. Like Through doing this work and advocacy work, I have talked to multiple people where my story is common. It's common. And it shouldn't be. So many people like who have issues with housing, like with crime-free multi-housing project, but also like different things, like with HUD and Section 8 vouchers, where they, they you can't live in Riverside. Like no apartment fits the limit for a Section 8. So people have to move out to Hemet. It's almost structured to keep people with past convictions out of Riverside through apartments, which builds to the point, I think you highlighted in the thing, like the new Jim Crow. It's a form where people who, like I said, I lived in a hot zone, so everybody in my community have a record. Everybody from my community can't live, <laughs> can't even live in certain places, you know? So it's, it's vicious, it's vicious. So I'm glad you brought up the segregation, this aspect of this, because I want to raise to you the point that many of supporters of these programs have made you know, we talk to them in the story itself and then after the fact, and you know, they say, look, like these programs, they don't have anything to do with race. And in fact, they make it so that people of all races can live safely and free from crime. What do you make of that argument? It's two things. One, I don't know the exact thing about it, but I've been talking to um, housing advocates over the year. They're trying to make people with past convictions a protected group because of the racial profiling that happened over all the years. Like how one in three black men may have a record. They're making advances towards that, lawyers and all types of stuff. So, like, I see that coming for people who say that it doesn't have racial and things. But, like, the whole concept of the new Jim Crow is that after so long, you couldn't call nobody by a racial slur. They shift the language of talking. So now you don't give somebody a record and you don't call them a slur, but you call them a criminal. And that has been that has been implemented. Everything from the Goldwater speech and everything else to that point to build up what we're seeing today. So like, yes, it don't actually say race, but like that was part of the plan in the first place so that they could say that we're not singling out no race. So I think it's all a part of the play. And they put guises and veils over people where people who's not in it won't be able to recognize what's happening. And to that fact is, is that the crime-free multi-housing projects sign is all over the city, but nobody knows what it does unless you're one of the people who, who they denied. Then you can say, oh, yeah, man, I know exactly what that program is. You know what I mean? And then the other thing about it is about safety is the crime-free multi-housing project, if my mom lives in a, a, a crime-free multi-housing project, I can't visit my mom. If my mom got sick, I couldn't help her. Well, I could help her, but it, it goes on the verge of putting me or her in trouble. Like, if I get caught on her property and they ask me, who am I visiting? And if I say my mom, she's at risk of being evicted. If I say, I ain't telling y'all who I'm coming to visit, I'm at risk of trespassing. I mean, so now I can't even help my own mom. 
you know, or anybody else. It affects more than just person living with a past conviction. It hurts anybody in close proximity to them. Mm-hmm. So, Terrence, anything that we haven't asked you that you think could be important for us to, to understand? You know, for me, housing meant everything. Family reunification, a place to rest my head, a place for safety. Some of these apartments have community centers, so it's a, it's a place for health, recreation as far as like swimming pools and everything else. People should have access to this, especially if you're trying to get yourself together. I did not know that this was going to affect my life like this. My crime, almost over 20 years old. And I'd like to just highlight the fact that like most of the criminal, quote unquote, criminal background checks is for doing something positive. If I want to get a job, <laughs> they're checking me. If I want to get into housing to take care of my family, they're checking me. It's hardly ever a background check that, like, negative that you apply for. <laughs> you don't apply for negative background checks. So everything that you do is for upward mobilization, to put your family in a safer place. It's to make your community safer. You know, they say it's crime prevention, but, like, really, in all reality, it's a part of public safety to keep us safe as well because if we're not put on the verge of homelessness or being poor, low-income wages, all these collateral consequences of criminal conviction, if we can remove some of them for the people that are trying to get their rights together, we'll make the world that much of a safer place. And me, that's what I do. I'm not just a client. I'm actually statewide director for when it comes down to issues like this. And it's not because... You know, I theory on it is because this is something that I'm really living with. So, like, I work for California Safety and Justice Time Done Project, but this is my life. <sighs> this is my life. And I just wanted to thank y'all too, Matt, Lim, for giving me this opportunity to say something because for so long, nobody was hearing me. So long, I've been telling people the hardship of how it is to walk with a daughter. Well, they'll tell you no when you have your whole family and you feel helpless and depressed and all types of other stuff. Nobody will hear you. So I appreciate y'all for bringing this issue to the forefront because I could tell you from how it affected me personally, but it affects so many more people than me. So many more people than me. So, man, thank y'all. Real quickly, is there a social media account you want to give out? so people can follow your advocacy? You can look at Safe and Just, Safe and Just on Facebook, Twitter. My name is Terrence Stewart, T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E, Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Instagram, too. I'm on all of them, you know, and I use all these platforms to get the word out about the many barriers that we face because California, we have over 8 million people living with past convictions. That's a lot of people. And there's over yeah. 4,800 barriers that we face here in California and 48,000 nationally. So like the part we talking about crime-free housing and see how much it affected my life, that's just one of the collateral consequences that I deal with. All right, well, thank you again, Terrence. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. And me, Liam Dillon with the LA Times. My Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. And shout out to the extraordinarily talented Victor Figueroa, 
podcast producer and editor extraordinaire. How many times can I say extraordinary to describe you, Victor? Three. There was three right there, and it's still not enough. <laughs> we will be back in two weeks, and I'm excited. We won't announce it just yet, but we, get, we got a good guest coming up. Knock on Pretty wood. Pretty pumped. Knock Pretty on pumped. wood, yes. Knock on wood, yes. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>